Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of I Pledge Allegiance. This week, we have on a return guest, Hasu. I'm also very happy to bring on Sam Kozin, who used to lead smart contracts for Lido and now is working on a, a few different things, but has been primarily focused on the dual STETH governance proposal. I'm super pumped to be having both of them on today because Lido is a protocol that I think has really emerged out of the landscape over the last two years to become one of the key protocols within Ethereum and all of crypto. I think for other protocols that are earlier in the life cycle and are going to have these same challenges and dynamics about how to behave and how to scale the protocol once you are the market leader. I think without further ado, very excited to dive into some of these questions with Sam and Hasu. So welcome. Hey, Derek. Hey, Sam. Good to be here. Yeah, nice to be here. So I guess to set some context for everyone, I think most people are familiar with Lido and what it does. One interesting question is just like, Lido today is the dominant liquid staking provider on Ethereum. It accounts for 30% of all staked assets. What is behind this growth? Why did Lido win over other projects? There are actually several reasons. I think the main reason is that Lido was able to meet the demand for staking. So we did this by actually starting with professional operators and not requiring them to like put any bond, which enabled capital efficiency for them. This is one of the most important things that allowed us to grow, together with definitely product simplicity for users and credibility via like founders and uh, investors. So I think these three are the main reasons. So I think what's really underrated in Lido's success, Lido was the first to market. They were the first liquid staking provider to launch back when the beacon, I think Lido was conceived before the beacon chain was even live. So it was just the founders of Lido, they were really visionaries. They were really strong believers in proof of stake and in Ethereum to build a project that you know will only take over block production two to three years later into the future. So in like crypto terms, that's a really kind of long-term thinking. Because Lido was so early, it really helps to build the network effect and like capture this early demand for staking. Like they really understood that people, if they are staking is available, then people will want to stake, but they want to delegate it right? because staking is complicated. It's very prone to mistakes and you have the 32 ETH limit, which at the time right now is around $50,000. So it's really hard for small stakers. And then they also knew that a staking derivative would be the winning solution. So I think they had a really good grip on the value proposition that would win in the market against all other solutions. I think they combined this really with, I would say, very flawless execution, big focus on security and putting the user first. They also understood how they can meet the demand from the supply side. So choosing the right scaling model, I think is really key. So we saw other providers going for like a fully bonded approach, which if you think about it, it's very clear that it can't scale. It can't meet the demand. And I think we saw that this is true empirically. Finally, I would say on the business development side, I think Lido did a good job. It made some really good decisions in like the area of sort of affiliate programs, but also very deep integrations for Staked ETH or derivative asset. And so I think the way that Staked ETH can be used in DeFi today is almost as good as ETH itself in terms of how you can use it as collateral and so on. 
So I would think all of these have really contributed to Lido's success. I think the last part, the integrations and the BD efforts have been obviously critical and the most easy to see for listeners. What would you consider some of the most important like moments, so to say? Like, I, For example, the STETH listing on Aave and incentives, they're probably a great example, the referral program, which you mentioned. Curious if you can talk a bit more about that dynamic. So we got first listed on Maker, which props to them. That's great. But sort of borrowing USD slash die against ETH. So we knew it's only the first step. People will do it because there's no alternative. But really, there's much more demand to borrow ETH against like ETH. So you basically don't have any uh, price risk against ETH. So you're not, yeah, you can't get uh, liquidated as easily. And so you have much more capital efficiency. The integration maker was important, but I think what really sent Lido's growth into a so much faster pace was the Aave integration. So yeah, I would say that was a very pivotal moment. Yeah, that's for sure. When this integration launched, it enabled a really rapid growth afterwards. It was one of the most impactful integrations of all. Actually, there's one more thing that I would add. Lido team understood better than anyone else the importance of liquidity around the pack and making the token useful. And I think sort of the incentives that were used in Curve, I think this big incentive program, which is, it's like Lido's biggest cost factor by like over half of what Lido spends in its lifetime, probably even more than that. And so I think it really has to be pointed out that, yeah, this also really contributed to the success. I think that explains really well why Lido became dominant. And I think the next logical thing to talk about is what ended up happening in terms of community concerns or questions around Lido's potential power over some of the staked assets and over that of Ethereum itself. Before diving into the dual STE, it probably makes sense to, I think, talk about the self-limiting proposal, what happened there. Curious if one of you can talk a bit about the Lido self-limiting debate, who brought that up and how that all sort of went down. Yeah, I guess before diving into even the self-limiting debate, I think yesterday the merge happened. And I think it's important to understand a few fundamental things about proof of stake that are different to proof of work. Many people have predicted this for a long time, namely that proof of stake is very prone to two things. So one is delegation. Yes, you make it so that like way more people can greatly lower the barriers to entry for people to become validators on the blockchain. So in proof of work, it's nearly impossible. There's huge economies of scale and geographical differences. And so it's very hard to be a miner and be profitable. But in staking, the difference between the best staker and the worst staker is really small. Basically, like performance, there's a really small part. So all of these like differences in quality, they are really taken away. And this is great because it allows the network to become much more democratic. That said, if you have something that's very democratic, then people will still not stake themselves. What will happen instead is that everybody will want to stake for the return and they will want to delegate their tokens. And this has been predicted forever and we've already seen it play out in other chains. So none of this stuff is really new of what's happening in Ethereum. The second big difference is financialization. Mining hardware, because it's so non-fungible, because like every miner, because of the unique cost structure of the miner is very non-fungible and it's also in meat space and not on the blockchain, it's very hard to financialize. If you have sort of a validator 
on a beacon chain, then every validator is almost as good as any other validator. There are some differences in quality of node operators, but they are not nearly as big. And so it's much easier to financialize this. It was very clear that there will be big staking pools and they will sort of take user Eve and they will delegate it to node operators and these node operators will run. So to me, this was like clear for years. That's uh, also why I thought Ethereum is going to proof of stake, which I have my concerns about it, but it's interesting and I still want to help them. And so I thought, well, what's kind of the worst thing that can happen? And the worst thing that can happen is probably large exchanges becoming biggest stakers in Ethereum. I would sort of reframe it around this. So in Lido, Lido white paper, first line, Lido's mission is to prevent staking from the crew on centralized exchanges. So that's really important. I think this kind of sets the background for the kind of Lido's success, but also why there's like no easy solutions to this problem. People can now look at Lido and say, oh, Lido is like very big and it becomes very dangerous, but it's also, there's like no easy way that this could have been prevented because without Lido, then you would have instead of like 20% stake on Coinbase and like 15% on Kraken and 10% on Binance, you would have had twice these numbers at least. That's always sort of the context that I would like to give first. No, that's a great point. And yeah, I think the framing of it is critical, right? I think in terms of how the self-limiting and the dual SCE thing fits into the broader roadmap. In terms of moving along the discussion, Sam, do you want to talk a little bit about the inspiration behind the dual STETH governance proposal. Maybe it makes sense to start with, continue from where Hasu left off and talk about the self-limiting debate as well. Yeah, so the self-limiting uh, thing that arises in the Ethereum community, in my opinion, it's a healthy reaction from the community because they see some mechanism that could pose threat for the ecosystem. This is a normal and good reaction. And this is one of the strengths of Ethereum. It has a really strong community. But I think that limiting any of the market players won't help here because the excess state, it will just go to the exchanges. Obviously, won't limit. All of them want to decide to limit themselves. So given that the market dynamics of staking, meaning that the liquidity really matters and uh, the more liquidity the solution has, the more liquidity it attracts. These dynamics, like if LIDA will limit themselves, like give up a stake to other entities, it might happen that some other centralized entity gets most of the stake and wins. Starting from some moment, this is really hard to undo because of the market. So the concerns are valid. So LIDA governance has some power over the critical parts of the protocol. For example, LIDA governance could like steal a new ether that's coming. After withdrawals are enabled, LIDA governance could steal almost all ether. I mean, after triggerable withdrawals are enabled. So ideally, what we want to have is that the governance wouldn't have these powers, which means that the protocols should be ossified. The governance should just maybe manage the treasury, maybe some non-critical parameters of how stake is distributed, but not like the critical parameters of the protocol. But right now we cannot do that because Ethereum is not finished yet. So there are upcoming upgrades that we'll need to incorporate, implement a new logic for that. So we have to have our code upgradable. And this leads us to the conclusion that like, we cannot limit the governance power, but the concerns of the community are valid. And is there 
any like mechanism that could help us to limit the impact of the governance. And so that's why like dual governance was proposed. So it doesn't avoid potential centralization, but it helps to limit the negative consequences of this. Right. It's sort of acting as a check on LDO token holders and what they're capable of doing as a single sort of alignment. Curious if one of you can dive in a bit deeper into what the core design is of dual governance and how it works. Probably makes sense to touch on the core veto design and what that process looks like. I would like to start with that the design is still not set in stone. It's still a work in progress. Today, I've published an update to this design that changes some crucial things around it, but not the main idea. The main idea is that stakers can block any decision that has the potential to change in a harmful way or in an unexpected way the implicit or explicit agreement between the LIDA governance and stakers. Even if it's not explicit, the agreement is still here. Stakers expect something like some basic things from the protocol. Ethereum community also expects some things from the protocol, basically to not do anything that would harm the network. Dual governance allows stakers to block decisions that could potentially do that. So this is like the most basic idea. Then like there are questions, how do we measure disagreement of the community? How do we block decisions? Do we block these decisions forever or just impose an extended time lock? The latest version of design, it goes like this. We measure the disagreement of the community with the governance by using specialized contract, which is Vita escrow contract. People can bring their SDF into this contract and it's locked there, basically. And the amount of SDF that is locked in the contract can be used as a kind of oracle about how strong is the disagreement in the community. We start from an assumption that there is some active part of community, it is small but active, that can observe and react to a potential bad decision in a timely manner. If they react and object by locking their SDF, a larger time window is triggered that allows a wider part of the community to participate. And the second assumption is that there is some wider part of the community that needs more time to react, but can still react and object decision. And in the case, this part activates during some time after the activists reacted, then uh, the Vita state is triggered. So this is the basic thing. When the Vita state is triggered, any decision that could potentially break the agreement is blocked. It cannot be executed, even if it's voted, uh, the LDO voting passes. So the government centers the veto negotiation state where community can allow some specific decision to pass, but by default, decisions get blocked. Let's maybe look at a specific example to see how a proposal would go through this governance flow. Sam, let's say the proposal is now implemented and there's a new proposal in governance that would mint 1 million stake ETH to Lido governance. I think this would be like one of the main exploit vectors. So Lido governance can go and withdraw ETH from money that they printed out of thin air. So let's say this proposal goes into voting. How much time, is it already set? How much time does the first stake ETH holders have to react to this? 
it's not defined yet. It's a parameter of the system. The idea is that any these potentially harmful decision has uh, like an extended time lock compared to a regular decision, for example, spending some money from treasury. This time span should allow the active part of the community to react. It's not set yet, but it should be like pretty decent time, like not hours, definitely. I would say yes. Between like two and four weeks, probably. So let's say the delay is like three weeks and some large stakeholder realizes, oh, this proposal is really bad for us. They bring their Steve and put it into the scroll smart contract. It's not yet locked. They can get it back at this, at this moment. But if they decide to have it there, it's counted towards the measurement of uh, disagreement of the community. So it becomes locked when the three weeks are over. There are two limits. The first limit, the size of the active part, like of the minimally active part of the community. Say it's 2% or maybe 3% or maybe even 1% of the total LDO supply. If this limit is exceeded of the total locked tokens, then VITA voting starts, which is time span that allows a wider part of the community to, to participate. So say if this large holder has more than like, for example, 2% of the total SD supply, or there are a lot of holders that combined have more than 2%. If they put their SD into this scroll, then VITA voting is activated. Until it's activated, anyone can bring or get back their tokens. But if the 2% threshold is exceeded, then VITA voting starts. It lasts minimum some fixed amount of time, for example, three weeks. But when you bring more STETH to this scroll, this time span increases, actually. So the more community participates, the more a white part of the community has the opportunity to participate because the voting gets extended. And if, as the result, more than some certain threshold, the second threshold is locked, then the governance goes into the VETA negotiation state. What happens in that stage? So let's say 2% was the threshold and 4% of all stake e-folders, they put their ETH into the veto contract. So can you describe how the next stage works? Yeah, the next stage, even in the VETA voting state, in the previous stage, the critical governance decisions cannot be executed. It's kind of extended time lock. For example, if as the result of this state, the second threshold is not uh, exceeded, governance returns to the normal state. And then all decisions that were like time locked, they become executable back. But if the second threshold is exceeded, then all these decisions got blocked. Any new decisions that get proposed while the governance is in this state, they are also blocked. They cannot be executed at any time in future, regardless of the future governance state, unless community agrees to specifically allow some decision. So basically, we go into a state where the community has to explicitly opt into any new proposal instead of previously, it was sort of opt out and now it's opt in. Yes, exactly. And so how would it resolve? Let's say there is this toxic proposal that mints 1 million ETH to Lido governance. So now we are in the veto stage. So how does the negotiation work between the vetoers and Lido? Is it that Lido governance will withdraw the proposal and then... At some points, governance continues, or will it just perpetually stay in this opt-in state? The governance doesn't have to withdraw the proposal because it's automatically vetoed, so it's withdrawn, basically, unless the community agrees to execute it. To return the governance to the normal state, there should be an explicit action that is approved by both LDO holders and stakers. It goes like this. There is 
a method for returning governance to the normal state, which is itself subject to dual governance. LDO holders propose and vote for this change, then STE holders approve this change, and then governance returns to the normal mode. The criteria for this is like not set. It's not set in code. It's uh, in the mid space. <laughs> so these two groups of people should negotiate and come to some agreement. If they don't come, then the governance stays in the negotiation state. Okay. So this part is like the less important one because we hope that just because the stake e-folders can veto proposals and send the governance into what is effectively gridlock that uh, this is a big deterrent for Lido governance to even do anything that would hurt the stakers to begin with because it would greatly harm the protocol. Yeah, it's kind of incentive realignment device. Yeah, that's how I think about like the dual governance in general. It aligns the incentives because in the natural state, it's very possible to imagine that LDO holders and stakers incentives are not always aligned with each other. For example, Lido governance also is on other blockchains. Let's say uh, Lido makes a decision that, uh, for example, if governance doesn't like, what should happen then? So it's very important that sort of any decision that can affect Ethereum holders, it should be made with the, at least the implicit buy-in of these e-folders. So we think that if you are a protocol that's this close to the security, the, the source of security for public blockchains, It has to be as close to neutral infrastructure as possible. I mean, this is a dynamic that I think a lot of protocols have where only specifically for governance tokens, where the governance token holder has sets of power outlined specifically and other stakeholders don't. I think MakerDAO is another great example. MCARE holders have governance power. DAI users don't necessarily have that same influence. Obviously, I don't think it's an apples to apples comparison here in terms of security to an L1, but I think it feels like something that networks have all applications have to think about in some way if they reach a certain scale. I mean, yes, I would agree. And it's not even governance in crypto. I mean, so these so-called principal agent problems, they are a huge topic in corporate governance as well. So even going beyond corporate governance, even in like governance of nations, etc., For example, in corporate governance, the first big principal agent problem is that between, so usually unlike in sort of in crypto, it, which is sort of much more the people who own the tokens, they are also the operators. So it's still much more uh, owner operated. But in like traditional finance, the managers of a company, they are almost always agents who act on behalf of the equity investors. And this has many advantages, but it also make sure, you know, because these are no longer the same people, that it's very hard to align the incentives between management and the owners of the company. So that's the first big principal agent problem. And a lot of words have been spilled about exactly figuring out how to design corporate governance around this to really align these incentives as well as possible. And then you have a second principal agent problem that is between the smaller shareholders and the bigger shareholders. So to cost, for example, the bigger shareholders could just vote themselves to like dilute away the shares of the smaller shareholders or, or something like that, or like block them from decisions. So there's all kinds of things that like power can give you in these voting systems. And so it's very important that governance in crypto, it catches up to the state-of-the-art solutions to these fundamental problems that 
oil governance systems have. We have one fundamental advantage in crypto, which is that we can build incentive alignment into our protocols, which is impossible in corporate governance, actually. In this case, we can sort of really make sure that certain decisions can be made. So that's ossification. We just have immutable smart contracts. And then we have other ways for any decisions that can be ossified, where we really try to align the incentives between the different actors in the system. So I'm very bullish on like a longer time frame on governance of DAOs for that reason, because I think it really expands the toolbox for how these problems that have been around for centuries in many cases can be addressed. I mean, in many ways, this proposal, which at the fundamental core aligns incentives between LDO holders with other stakeholders and STETH holders, like it unlocks a new category of growth for Lido. It's like users can have a lot more comfort like using Lido and seeing it continue to grow because there are certain checks in place and safeguards, both for Lido itself and for the infrastructure that it's built on, i.e. Ethereum. So in many ways, it's not even necessarily a constraint. It's more, this is a way to unlock a new era of growth in a healthy manner. I mean, I completely agree. I think no one has a bigger incentive to reduce the power of Lido than Lido itself. So Lido doesn't want to have these kind of abilities to, you know, mint new state ETH, for example. It's only because Ethereum, we are waiting for like future Ethereum upgrades that, for example, these safeguards in the system still have to exist. But we don't want them there at all. We want Lido to be really just a smart contract that's as immutable as a liquidity pool in Uniswap, where once it's deployed, it can never be changed again. And everybody can have full certainty that it's going to do what it says it does. Once something can be ossified, I think the developers in Lido and the community is the first to say, oh yeah, let's like remove this power immediately. Because we understand at the most fundamental level that governance first and foremost is a liability. And there's a sort of a cost that you incur and we want to get rid of this cost. And when we can get rid of it, then this makes it much easier for our users and the Ethereum community to trust that Lido just wants to democratize staking and make it as cheap as possible and as comfortable as possible. And yeah, I think that we can leverage the power of blockchains in order to do just that. Yeah, that's one reason I don't get some people saying that dual governance or ossification will dilute the value of LDO. It will decrease its power, but there is like good power and there is bad power. Power of stealing users' money is a bad power power of managing the protocol treasury is a good power. So dual governance or ossification doesn't remove the latter, but it does remove the former. Yes. And this is like a, in effect, like a well-researched and understood like concept in economics, the cost from like cooperation and trade not happening because one party can trust the other is called agency cost. For example, there's like no male babysitters. Why? Because like families don't trust men to babysit their children. The cost basically for like the male person to like become a babysitter, it's actually like blocked from this market because of agency cost. You can probably find like a lot of better examples, but this one was sort of on my mind. And there is sort of a lot of unseen cost on any business from customers not trusting it, suppliers not trusting it, employees not trusting it, because you can say you're going to do something or you're not going to do something, but how can I know for sure? That's why I, I keep coming back to this. This is actually like the main value proposition 
public blockchains, period, which is lowering agency cost in the economy. Blockchains are trust machines and applications built on top of blockchains. They can leverage this power in order to lower agency costs and produce sort of better services at a cheaper price than traditional companies can. And I'm super excited about proving this case with Lido and other projects that I work with. Yeah, and in my opinion, this can be achieved even without preventing blockchain products from being improved and developed. I believe there are ways to build it in a modular fashion where like the next iterations leverage the previous iterations, but build upon them and not mutate them. Constant development here can be achieved without keeping governance power over modifying the existing code and potentially breaking the contract. Yeah, that's such a good point. The trade-off to ossification is always adaptability. So these are like two ends of a spectrum. I think it'll be very interesting to see what kind of designs and like innovation in modularity we will get. I think that'll be really, really interesting. Yeah, we're not here yet, but yeah, it will be really nice to see what will arise. On that topic, on ossification and modularity, Lido has a long-term roadmap about protocol ossification continuing to decentralize many different facets of the protocol from, in terms of every layer of the stack, validator onboarding, among other things. Where does dual token governance fit into that? I'm assuming it's just one piece of the puzzle. And what are some of the other categories? Dual governance allows to limit the downsides of the current non-ossified setup. It aligns the incentives between stakers and governance and allows us to iterate on the code and grow at the same time. At the time where we can ossify the protocol, we will ossify the protocol. I would say that Ideal outcome is that dual governance becomes obsolete because there is no governance power to limit. I mean, potentially harmful governance power to limit. Dual governance doesn't prevent centralization. It has nothing to do with the distribution audio or like distribution of validators. These are other important topics to iterate upon, and we are working on these. Apart from the dual governance, we need to decentralize different aspects of the protocol. For example, one thing that we are working on is allowing permissionless entry into the validator set. Because right now, the node operators onboarding committee that evaluates the new entries into the node operator set, it's obviously a centralization power because they can propose to the governance who we should accept and who we shouldn't. Other thing is that centralization of Governance power and validators is not the only things that can be harmful. It's not the only kinds of centralization. There is also, for example, infrastructure centralization, setup centralization. For example, validators uh, and operators are running similar or the same setups, programs, or even worse, using white label setups. So this all brings points of failure to the Ethereum network. These are really hard problems to solve. If we can assess even maybe like trust assess in the future, like what kind of, for example, validator client uh, the validator is running, assessing whether they're using white label stuff is a really hard thing to solve. It's not yet solved. We have to solve it to achieve proper decentralization. I would add, where does dual governance fit into the overall puzzle of like decentralizing NIDO? So I would say that 
we want to use ossification wherever it lowers the agency cost more than what it costs us in adaptability. And by adaptability, I mean, so not just like from Lido's perspective, so like reacting to things that competitors do or, you know, in ways that sort of mark the market changes, but also protecting users from things that they are force of nature, like back in the protocol, for example. Some amount of adaptability, moving adaptability entirely has a cost. So there's like just no way around that. So wherever agency cost is lowered more than adaptability cost, then we want to use ossification. This includes whenever you can sort of use new technology to solve similar goals, but in an ossified way. For example, distributed validator technology, as Sam was saying. So maybe this allows us to onboard new validators and make sure that they fit the performance criteria that Lido has. That's really important. Why? Because Lido is a protocol that socializes slashing and performance across all validators. And so in order for this to work, we need a certain base quality in our uh, node operators. But if we have new technology, then we want to use this to replace the old one. And this would be a really great example where we can give up adaptability and gain lower agency cost. Everywhere else, sort of where it matters, we want to use dual governance. I would say to align the incentives between the people who make the decisions and the people who are affected by the decisions. My definition of, you were saying, like, Sam, you don't think that dual governance lowers centralization. So I think it depends on the definition. So my definition of centralization and public blockchains tends to be like single points of failure or capture. And I think dual governance it does a, indeed, indeed do a really good job removing this because there is no longer a single point of failure for stakers because they have the chance to veto any decision that is made. Yeah, I agree. If, if, if viewing centralization from the perspective of points of failure, yeah, dual governance indeed removes a potential point of failure. And yeah, I agree. One related topic while we're on dual governance is like, what are your guys' thoughts on delegation? I think both for the LDO token itself, but also for SCE voting powers, because you could see some interesting future scenarios where, again, I think to provide context for the listener, there's a lot of a sizable portion, I would say, of STETH is from protocols and entities that themselves have unique governance processes or powers in place, such as, let's say, Nexus Mutual. What are your guys' thoughts on ability for delegation, let's say, STETH voting power? Like, let's explore this category a little bit and talk through it. Yeah, so I'm really bearish on owner-operated protocols. So it depends. The original, like operator is also the owner, then that's great. But if you have like a diversified base of owners who then try to collectively operate a protocol, I think that protocol has no chance, basically. And that's kind of the your classic version of the DAO that's run by random token holders. And in practice, this means you have like 1% vote participation, you have special interests pushing things through, unchecked, you have sort of really bad decisions. So it basically goes back to what I already laid out. So you have the two principal agent problems, aligning the interests of the owner and the operator and aligning the interests of the small owner and the big owner. This has to be the starting point for designing a governance system for any protocol. I think it's important to view it from that lens when you design a delegate system. If you design a delegate system, you're like run-of-the-mill MakerDAO thing or like whatever all protocols use, then you basically haven't addressed either. 
So what you have done is like you, you marginally lower the cost to participate in governance. Why? Because token holders can, instead of participating themselves, they can now delegate. You hope that somebody else is like a delegate and they participate. You have to like pay them a little bit or whatever. It doesn't fundamentally address both of these principal agent problems really well. And I would say the biggest one is that it's just not possible for delegates to have a holistic view of a protocol and make good operational and strategic decisions. To summarize like all of what I think about this and how I would design the perfect delegate system, but I think you basically have to like rethink it from scratch according to sort of best practices and everything has to be designed around these two principal agent problems. And so I, I hope that Lido doesn't just copy the delegate systems that other projects have, but that it tries to put as much of its vision down as it can, sort of immutable in governance, and then has a strategy that it commits to. And then it has either like a board system or kind of very specialized delegates who are sort of experts in a particular domain of the protocol, or they just manage the budget, etc. right? So what you don't want is like 15 semi-informed people voting together. But I think what you want is you want decisions to be made by domain experts with sort of a deliberately holistic and high-level view of the protocol. When you have that, and when you have dual governance as well, then you have a very good coverage in like churning out very good decisions for the protocol while also protecting the owners and the small token holders from these principal agent hazards. Yeah, I agree that any delegation system that we might adopt should be carefully designed from the first principles, not just COVID. We'll definitely need some kind of delegation system because we have, like any DAO, we have a problem of voting fatigue. It was partially solved by another governance primitive, which is called Easy Tracks, Easy Motions, which is like, votings for specific things limited in scope that pass by default but can be objected which is good for like some operational things like distributing incentives or maybe approving some deposit data creators but they are limited in scope and that's like the idea and for more important things like for less operational things we still have to to use full-fledged voting and yeah ideally we would like to have some delegate system as for delegation of STF voting power to participate in the dual governance, I think we should be really careful with that because we want to measure when we allow some protocol to have say for their users, we have one more principal agent problem. Actually, we give the power of this decision to the holders of these protocols governance tokens. I wouldn't do that. Instead, the idea of dual governance is to, to allow the small active group of stakers to protect all others that, for example, may have limited access to STF liquidity. Maybe it's locked in some protocol, maybe it's locked in some treasury or something like that. This is something that is worth exploring, but I would be really, really, really careful with it. Yeah, I'm in the same camp. I mean, dual governance is not supposed to be used. In practice, like it's a gun that's like supposed to be never fired. The use is like way too low to justify the cost that it would take for us to maintain like a delegate system around this, where you ask people to like select between the delegates and evaluate them and then make a transaction in order to delegate, whatever. Like it's just all sort of way too 
expensive to do from the perspective of the token holder. So I think we started from a very safe assumption that, for example, there's like 1% of all stake DF holders that are watching Lido governance and that will act if a bad proposal happens over, let's say, the course of a month. I think that is a very safe assumption to make. I have not seen any evidence to the contrary. When you have a very safe assumption, then you don't need extra delegation for that. Yeah, another thing to consider is that it's not a closed system in the way that even if your staked ETH is locked somewhere, you can always mint a staked ETH from ETH and use it to participate in the dual governance. So dual governance allows new staked ETH holders to participate in the process. It's not limited to the existing holders. Totally makes sense. And it will be interesting to see how I think delegation evolves further in Lido. I, I know it's been a topic that's come up a few times on the forums. My last question on this proposal specifically, Sam, so what's the current status with the proposal? Like, what are the next steps? What are your plans? The current status is that a new iteration of design was posted today. I doubt that it's already reviewed by the community, but like we expect the community to do that. When we get some initial feedback on this design, when we see whether it's like generally acceptable, if it is, then we'll start two processes in parallel, even three processes in parallel. The first process is making some draft implementation of it to play with it. The second process is polishing the mechanism itself, getting feedback from maybe some experts in the field. The third process is researching the particular parameters of the mechanism because it has a lot of parameters and it is defined by its parameters and they are not yet set and even uh, researched. So we plan to go with these three tracks. What I can say for sure about the implementation time is that we have to finish and activate this mechanism before there are withdrawals and especially triggerable withdrawals because when the withdrawals are enabled, LIDAR governance gains more power over the validator set. This is not only good power, but also bad power that should be limited. Awesome. I think that was a really good overview of the dual STETH governance proposals and the dynamics, how it fits into the broader roadmap. There's so many other things that we could talk about with LIDO, especially when it pertains to governance. I think there's been a lot of interesting proposals, a lot of precedent-setting things. Probably makes sense to talk a bit about the merge, just given it happened two days ago. Yeah, curious, Hasu, if, if you can talk a bit about the merge and some of the recent relevant topics there, maybe you could touch on MEV Boost and, and whatever else you think is relevant. So yesterday the merge happened. What this means is now the consensus layer of Ethereum was basically swapped out. What was previously uh, Nakamoto consensus, the beacon chain now does that job. They are now responsible for ordering the transactions. And so previously, Lido node operators and other node operators on the beacon chain, they were only sort of responsible for this quote-unquote incentivized testnet that the beacon chain was. But now they are responsible for ordering transactions and making blocks for Ethereum itself. So what this means is that mainly the rewards are much higher. So now beacon chain operators also make money from transaction fees, MEV. Sort of they have to make actual decision about what goes into these blocks because beacon chain blocks, they were all empty. They only had like 
attestations and like finalization and basically the kind of boil update stuff. But now there's actual block building involved. And what this means for Lido, Lido has to develop what we call block building policy. And the policy should cover how Lido node operators are expected to behave with regards to block building and how Lido distributes rewards between itself and the stakers and the node operators. And we sort of came together, thought about what does the optimal block building policy for Lido look like, and we quickly arrived at four different conditions that it must have. So it must maximize staking APR so that Lido is competitive with its rivals and uh, exchanges and so on. And then it must maximize Ethereum security because that's the whole reason why Lido was created. And then it must minimize MEV hiding. So MEV hiding is a problem that's very specific to whenever you delegate validating to a third party because what this third party can do, for example, with MEV, it can make a block that, for example, paid it two ETH in rewards, but it tells you, oh, I made only one ETH in rewards from this block. And there's no way to know because just uh, from Etherscan, etc., you cannot see how much money was actually paid to the creator of this block because not everything nowadays is paid in transaction fees. A lot of it is paid in Coinbase rewards and direct transfers to smart contract address and so on due to how the MEV marketplaces work. And so there is a big incentive to hide MEV as the agent from the principal, which is the staker. And so we know in order to address this problem, what we need is an oracle that tells us what is the most valuable block that can be built. So the best oracle that you can have is price discovery. So MathBoost allows just that. It's a marketplace that's very competitive between different block builders. It tells us very clearly what is the most valuable block that could have been built at this block height. If Lido knows that, then it can minimize MEV hiding. The last point is actually extremely similar to what we have been talking about all along. It's to minimize Lido's power over block building because this is like a purely bad kind of power. It's the kind of agency cost that Lido incurs here. And so we know it has it wants these four properties, maximize staking APR, maximize Ethereum security, minimize MEV hiding, minimize power over block building. And so we quickly realized the thing that satisfies all four is proposal builder separation or PBS. Why? Because it outsources block building to a competitive market and that checks all of these boxes. And as long as Lido can say, node operators, you have to outsource block building to the proposal builder market, then this is actually the perfect policy for Lido. And so that's what we agreed on. And then there's like some nuance about monitoring and nuance about what relays node operators have to connect to and can connect to. That's kind of the state of like Lido in block building right now. So we have this proposal out. It was voted on today. If it went live, which I think it did, I haven't checked, but this means that now node operators have around, I think, six weeks, you know, to start activating MathBoost and editing relays and so on, getting MEV rewards. After this point, then Lido node operators will outsource block building to the MathBoost block builder market. Really great summary. What is the anticipated impact on the end user experience? What kinds of increases in yields do you see happening? Are there any other implications? I think we have a post coming out on that sometime in like the next one or two weeks 
from Flashbots Research. So I, I can't tell you exactly. I've seen all kinds of numbers floating around. I wouldn't be surprised if the rewards factoring in MED is like 50 to 70, 80% higher than if you didn't use MapBoost. I mean, why? Because sort of the block subsidy was lowered like a great deal due to the merge. And there's not more MEV now than there was before, but just MEV is now the bigger part of the overall rewards. So I would say it is very important for Lido, for stakers, but also for node operators themselves that they adopt MathWist on like a reasonable time frame. And regarding rewards distribution between operators and stakers and Lido Treasury, we treat the execution layer rewards. So MEV and transaction fees uh, exactly the same as we treat the consensus layer rewards. So 90% go to stakers, 5% go to the treasury, and 5% go to all operators. We are actually restaking the execution layer rewards. So we are funneling this either to staking. Awesome. Any other topics or things that come top of mind for you guys that we could touch on? Yeah, as for L2s, right now we have staked if on Optimism Arbitrum, or maybe it's not yet enabled, but it's either enabled or will be enabled in the nearest coming days. What we don't have is kind of staking on these L2s. What we would ideally want to have is the ability for people who like have the liquidity on L2 to stake it directly from the L2, I mean, even liquidity on L2, without using any cumbersome mechanisms. And that will be the ideal way. It can be implemented differently. It can be some economical mechanism that involves third parties for transferring uh, those funds to L1 and staking there. Or it could be something more rigid, closer to the protocol itself. Eventually, we do want this. And ideally, this staking should be instantaneous or near instantaneous because the large upside of using light is that you get staked ETH instantly. You give us ETH, you get the token and can use it right away. This is like the ideal use that we want on L2s. Whether and when we would be able to build this ideal UX is a, remains a question, but this is our goal. Right now, we just have stake ETH token bridged to those L2s, and that can be swapped for other tokens via exchanges on these L2s. That is the current state. Yeah, really excited to see more development on the L2 landscape. and the next few months will be very interesting for Lido in general, post-merge, the implementation of dual governance, MevBoost, more and more Ether being staked. I think there's a lot of potential. I don't know how it'll all come together and what the second or third order effects will be, but it feels pretty clear that we're in a new paradigm for Lido in terms of its importance and the impact it has on the overall ecosystem. So I think it's really exciting to hear how you guys in Lido think about some of these topics and you guys are iterating both on the product and technical side, but also on the social and governance and decision-making side, because the implications are so big here. So yeah, really appreciate you coming on and I think everyone listening will learn a lot. Yeah. Thanks Derek for having us. Great conversation. Yeah, thank you. Really nice conversation.